you have your Bibles, excuse me, you can turn to Job 18. Job chapter 18. But as we turn there, I am going to pray for God's blessing upon this time. Lord, we thank you. First moment. We thank you for being able to gather in body and in spirit. Lord, we pray that in this moment, in my weakness, Father God, use me. In our weakness, Father God, open our ears and our hearts to hear what you have to say. We love you and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For those who are new and uh, tuning here and those who are tuning in at home, uh, my name is Mario Perez. I am the youth director here. Uh, Pastor Scott is uh, out on vacation with his family, so much needed rest. And so uh, we praise God that he has those moments where he can just escape a little bit and have some family time. And it uh, also means that I can share with you God's Word this morning, which I love doing and also get nervous at sometimes. But uh, as the more I engage in this, the more uh, it's been good. But uh, my sermon's title this morning is called I'm Over It. And for many of us, you're probably over a lot of things. You're probably over just, you can fill in the blank, in COVID, wearing masks, uh, work, Maybe homeschooling your kids. Whatever it may be, you have something that you're probably just over. And this morning's message, we're going to see how Job and his friend Bildad are both over it. They're both over something, and we're going to address this something. I'm going to read uh, Job 18 first. So if you can, please stand in body or in spirit for the reading of God's Word this morning. Hear these words from Job 18. Then Bildad the Shuite replied, When will you end these speechless, these speeches? Be sensible, and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle and considered stupid in your sight, you who tear yourself to pieces in your anger? Is the earth to be abandoned for your sake, or must the rocks be moved from their place? The lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. The light in his tent becomes dark. The lamp beside him go out, goes out. The vigor of his step is weakened. His own schemes throw him down. He, his feet thrust him into a net, and he wanders into, he wanders into its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare holds him fast. A noose is hidden from, for him on the ground. A trap lies in his path. Terror startle him on every side and dog his every step. Calamity is hungry for him. Disaster is ready for him when he falls. It eats away parts of his skin. Death's firstborn devours his limbs. He is torn from the security of his tent and marched off to the king of terrors. Fire resides in his tent. Burning sulfur is scattered over his dwelling. His roots dry up below, and his branches wither above. The memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name in the land. He is driven from the light into darkness and is banished from the world. He has no offspring or descendants among his people. No survivor where once he lived. Men of the West are appalled at his fate. Men of the East are seized with horror. Surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. Such 
is the place of one who knows not God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, that wasn't that very jolly and cheerful. Um, so one of the things that—so I, I lead— and the director of the youth ministry here. So I oversee middle school and high school ministry, and I've been doing that now for five years. It's been five years since I started here full-time. If you include the internship, it's been eight years that I've been here. So been here for some time. And one thing that I really appreciated that Nick Inhout did, the youth pastor before me, uh, did was implement small groups into the youth group. He had youth groups, uh, the small groups, that were based on gender as well as uh, grade. So freshman boys, sophomore boys, freshman girls, sophomore girls. You get it. We had small groups from sixth grade all the way up to high school. Some of you here have been small group leaders. Maybe you watching at home were a small group leader at one point. Uh, My first small group just graduated college, and so that blows my mind away. my, I have a second small group right now, and they are currently juniors. And so you get to see uh, people's lives transform over that time, but perhaps you're in a small group, not with like students, but with families. And maybe you live life with these families, and these, this family, this group of families, this cluster of families, is your small group. And you find such um, peace and good quality time there. Maybe it's a place in which you guys can just laugh and be honest with each other. Maybe it's a time in which you gather and you just, you just feel God's presence because it's good to gather. I think that's one thing we've taken advantage of and not realized over time was the importance of community. Now, I don't know about you, but COVID really taught me about that, that it's good to be in community. Now, we think of these small groups, we think of these, these places in which people gather together in smaller groups, and they share the life with each other. They share meals, they share hobbies, they share whatever it may be. Maybe their kids grew up playing with each other. Maybe you're a part of that, and it's good. And because of that, you have a deeper relationship with those in that small group. Perhaps you can tell somebody in that small group something about yourself that you wouldn't share with anybody else because you trust them. One of the rules that I have in sharing with my small group is what, what is shared in small group stays in small group. It is not a place to use information to bash each other or to tear each other down or to spread rumors, but it's a place in which people can be honest with each other and feel safe about it. So we see, we know that the small groups are important. One thing I've noticed in my youth ministry and the youth ministry here is it's important to have small groups. It's important to have that place and that space for that conversation, both encouragement and a wake-up call. It's okay to have those moments that cause tension. Tension is good. And we see this moment in which, in the text, Job perhaps has a small group, and we've been talking about this for over a few weeks now at Pastor Scott leading this series. And we see the life of Job starting off really great, and it crashes. And we wonder, God, why? And there are people that are surrounding Job that are just speaking these words that, it's like, why? Speaking these words that tear him down, that doesn't really help, that, you know, it's just, ugh. Just, you feel, you feel bad for the guy. And one of these guys here is a friend who thinks he's being honest. 
He thinks he's being a good friend. He thinks he's being honest in a way that's helpful. And we get my boy, Bildad. Bildad here is a friend of Job, and he's going to Job, and he's just over it. Bildad is over Job's life. He's over the suffering that Job is going through. And it's not so much what's happened to Job, but it's Job himself that he's frustrated with. He's not so much frustrated over the things that are happening in Job's life. He's frustrated at Job. And he's saying all these things. He's calling Job out. He is being honest with Job, and he is, like, not holding back. And for us, like, for for myself as, like, a youth pastor, I encourage my students to be honest with each other. If they see one of their brothers stumbling, and like, like, hey, encourage them. Help them out. And so, like, me reading this, I'm thinking, Bill, Dad, way to go. Way to be honest. Way to speak truth to Job. You tell him how it is. And it's like, wait a minute. We actually have to look back really quick on what Bill, Dad, is telling Job. In a way, he's not encouraging Job, but in fact, he's trash-talking Job. He's taking, he's tearing Job down. He is tearing down Job, a man who's gone through so much. And he's tearing him down in a way that is not helpful, that doesn't glorify God. Bildad is over it. He's just over it. He's so fumed and so caught up in what's happening in his friend's life that he's just frustrated. He's frustrated his friend because surely it's his friend's fault. He gives these whole, all these details of what's happening and everything. And he, at the very end of 18, in a way he blames what everything happened to Job on him. He doesn't say, Job, it's your fault this is happening. He goes, surely this is happening because a man who doesn't, like a man who has sinned. Surely this is a man who doesn't know God. Some translations say it's a, a man of, of, away from God, of, of a man, an evil man away from God. Some translations say a man who does not know God. He is now questioning and challenging the faith of Job. He just doesn't tear Job down in a way that like sticks his hands in those wounds in which Job experienced. He doesn't just talk about Job's loneliness or his belongings being taken away or his family being taken away. No, Bildad goes deeper than that and he hits that wound that says, hey, I don't even think you know God. But yet in the beginning of Job, we see that Job was a man after God's heart. That Job was like a very faithful follower of the Father. That Job was a man of God. And we see that Bildad is just tearing his friend down in a way that just challenges everything about him. He challenges everything about Job, even down to the core of his faith. He challenges that. He blames it all on Job's sin. He doesn't call him a man of God. This isn't right. But how do we how do we know that Job is how do we know that Bildad is wrong here? How do we know that he's actually not speaking truth? Because scripture gives us guidelines, scripture gives us clarity on how we can discern somebody after God's heart. 
Scripture shares with us, we see it not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament on how we call Christians, how you can tell of a follower of Jesus, how you can tell a follower of Christ. Scripture gives us clarity of how we know that. We know it by our love, our faithfulness to God. And sometimes we, we, we think that Job perhaps wasn't faithful. Surely he had a lot happen in his life. A, a lot of chaos took place in his life. And we would give him a pass saying, you can do whatever you want because you deserve it because your life has gone down the drain. And surely you have a pass to be unfaithful. But we see something very different. After we see Bildad go off and share these things about Job, we see Job's response, and I'm going to read Job 19. You can remain seated. But hear these words from Job chapter 19. This is Job's response. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Just right off the bat. Ten times now you have reproached, reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my errors remain my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry, I've been wronged. I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my path in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my, uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maidservants count me a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my sermon, but he does not answer, though I beg him from, with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped with only the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead, or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me, if you say how he will hound him, since the root of the trouble lies in him. You should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is judgment. 
Whew, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's a lot right there. And we're just going to take a step back really quick and just kind of break that down a little bit because I know how middle schoolers and high school schoolers are, and I'm kind of the same way where we hear a lot of things and it goes through one ear and out the other. So I'm going to break that down a little bit. Here we see Job's response, and Job is like, yeah, you're right. Job first is like, why are you like coming at me? Why are you yelling at me? Why do you want to fight right now? Like, you too? Somebody who I trust, somebody who I still have in my life, you're coming to me, and you see the pain that I am in, and yet you're going to tear me down more so? You see, I think many times we, we want to have sympathy for people, but instead God calls us to sit with them with empathy. Not just to care for them from a distance, but sit with them in their pain. Job is a man in this time who needs empathy. He needs somebody to sit with him in his pain. Not someone who comes and just unloads these words of destruction. Job is receiving that from his friend. Job is receiving that from Bildad, somebody who he loved and trusts, and he is hearing these things over and over again. He says, what is your problem? Do you want me to die too? Do you, are you just joining this group that has just hurt me? And we, can we notice really fact who he mentions in this group? We see his people among him, but he also places God in this group. He also places God in this group of attackers. And that's so interesting to see because we, like Job is going off. He's being honest. He's being honest with, with, with Bildad in front of him. And you can tell that Job is over it. He's over not just the attacks that he's receiving from Bildad, but from what's happening in his life. Job is tired of what's happening and he's just over it. He's over it. He's over the trials. He's over the chaos. He's over the frustration. He's over the pain. He's over the isolation and the, over, and the loneliness. He is over it. And he's wondering, why does this have to happen to me every time? Where are you? Where is my support? Where is my help? Job is in a place of just being over it. We have two people who are over things. We have Bildad, who is over just Job's posture. It's like, just stop being like a pity boat. Like, get over it. And we see Job, who is in this place of torment. And Job is being honest. It's a heartful response. He's over it. He's asking, why do people attack? Why does God attack me? Job is broken. All that he has left is nothing. His community is no help. I think about that, and I think of what he's, he's gone through and what he continues to go through in this text. And it, it makes me ask the question, what season of broken, like what were the seasons of brokenness in my life? What were the seasons of brokenness in your life?
There's times in which we experience that brokenness where we feel as if we are isolated, that we are stuck in pain and misery and frustration and hurt, and we're over the situation and we just don't know what to do. Our words stumble, our hands are always clenched in fists, and we're angry all the time. Perhaps you've experienced the season of anger. Maybe you've experienced a season of brokenness. What season are you in right now? You frustrated? You tired? Overwhelmed? Stressed? Angry? Hurt? Perhaps your marriage has not been good lately. Perhaps work is just draining. Maybe you've heard of an illness affecting you or a family member, someone you loved or cared about deeply. Maybe for some of the students here, maybe school has been that place of just like, ugh, not being able to go to school. I think about my second semester, second year, second semester of seminary. For those who don't know, I'm currently uh, in year four of five years of seminary and uh, almost done. I can see a light at the end of the tunnel now. I thought about quitting, but I was like, I'm already this far in. Might as well not. And so uh, I remember talking with Scott a few weeks ago about just those seasons of brokenness in my life. I remember sitting in his office and I was sharing with him about my second semester of my second year of seminary. And in that semester, uh, I just, my plate was full. We'll say that. I was uh, here, obviously here working. We had a really good-sized youth group at the time, and uh, we were getting ready for Camp Dunamis. We had winter retreats. We had summer mission trips planned. Like, full schedule here at youth group. Like, we were going—I think that year we were either going to Montana or we were going to New Mexico. But it was packed. It was a busy, busy semester here at work. That season was just really busy. Uh— school decided to be even busier. I had one of my toughest classes, and there are people—they're just interesting people you meet in seminary. You have some really amazing and awesome professors who help you and guide you in that time that invest in you. They want to see the best come from you, and they want to invest in you. And you have professors who aren't like that. They want you to know how much they know. And I had a a particular professor who— uh, his course literally made me want to quit everything. I never felt so defeated in my life where literally I would spend upwards of 20 to 25 hours a week just on his class. I was going to bed every night super late, uh, past midnight, probably close to 1 a.m., 2 a.m., trying to get ahead in his course not including the two other courses that I was taking, not including uh, working as well as coaching, as well as uh, planning for retreats and working with other churches. My plate was full. And I remember being in the season of just being so frustrated because I feel like everything I touched was falling apart. I feel like I couldn't do anything right. That was the only time that I've experienced thus far where I really wanted to quit everything. Or I just want it to be done with—I'm just done. I'm over it. I'm over feeling like I'm not capable of doing this. 
I never really questioned my calling until that semester where I remember my professor emailing me. He's like, I don't know if you can do this. Obviously, you're not putting in the work. And I'm like, obviously, you're not seeing me up till 2 a.m. every morning trying to get this done. You ever been in that situation where you've put so much effort, so much work, you think you're doing it great, and no matter what you do, it just falls apart? Because that's what I feel like Job went through. I feel like Job had everything going well for him. Everything was going smooth. He was doing things right. He had an awesome relationship with God, and everything just falls apart. And I remember one night just sitting in my living room on the verge of tears and frustration because I remember talking with friends and then like, hey, we haven't seen you in a while. Where have you been? And I'm I'm like, dude, I'm trying to get stuff done. I'm trying to stay afloat and I am drowning right now. Absolutely drowning. I remember that season being just so broken. I felt at times I was like a zombie. I was just walking with no emotion. I was tired. I was frustrated. And I remember just not knowing, like feeling numb. And perhaps that has been you recently. Or sometime in your life where you felt that, where you felt numb because of all the chaos around you. And you felt like your worth was nothing. You felt like you had no self-worth no value. Perhaps you, you question, you see the lives around it you care so deeply fall apart. And maybe you're in a season of brokenness right now. And you wonder why, God. And maybe right now you're over it too. But I'm encouraged that in that time of se- in that season of brokenness, in that time where I questioned my calling, I'll never forget, I was walking through the hallways at Calvin Center. I was on campus for intensives, and there was another professor who was tremendous, in, uh, like a tremendous professor. He encouraged me so much. There's two of them, actually. And I was like, man, I just need a hug from that professor right now. Just like, tell me it's going to be all right. Because he was like that father figure for the seminary. Everybody respected him. And he was in his office like, man, he's not even there. And then as I said that, one of the other professors walked up, another professor who I dearly respect. And he looked at me and goes, hey, I just want to encourage you. It's going to be all right. And he has no clue what's happening. He has no clue what's happening. He's like, hey, it's going to be all right. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. Like God, that was for sure a moment when I saw like God at work. It was moments like that that gave me hope. And I said, all right, God, instead of me complaining right now, I'm just going to give you praise. Because this is a moment worth praising about. We look at Job, and we see Job's response. His frustration he doesn't end in frustration. In verse 25, he says this of chapter 19. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has destroyed yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes and not another how my heart yearns within me. 
despite what Job has gone through, despite receiving the words that destroy him, that tear him down, despite feeling that pain and that loneliness and that isolation, Job still can stand there or sit there and say, my Redeemer lives. Despite everything that's taken place in his life, we have seen it the last few weeks going through this book. Despite all of that, Job can still say, my Redeemer lives. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I can't say that in my season of brokenness because I allow the, the stuff around me to keep my focus away from God. But yet in that moment, Job looks, he allows, he gives himself time to be honest with those around him, and he finishes off saying, my Redeemer lives. Job knows where his hope comes from. Job knows where, where he knows that things are going to be okay. Because at the end of it, he knows that he will stand before his Creator he even says that he's like, hey, I know my flesh is going to fail me. He thinks he's going to die. He thinks that season of brokenness is going to end right then and there. And he's going to pass. He's like, I'm going to go see my, my creator. Even in that time, even in that moment, moment, he can still state, my Redeemer lives. Job holds on to the faith. Despite all that. He knows the goodness of the Father. How hard was that for him to say? I wonder that. I wonder if he says that with such, like, enthusiasm of, like, my Redeemer lives. Or if he says that with hesitation. Not so much hesitation, but with just pain. My Redeemer lives. I think of that because... In that moment, it's so encouraging to see somebody who's gone through so much, everything taken from him, experiencing physical pain, emotional pain, mental disruption. He can still stand, sit there and say, my Redeemer lives, and I know my hope, my fate, and my hope. And our brokenness, can we still say that? Can we still say a difficult declaration? Job's moment, that difficult declaration that Job said, of confessing and acknowledging his Redeemer, the work of his Redeemer in the midst of chaos. Can we, in our moments of brokenness, in our seasons of frustration, can we still declare that our Redeemer lives? Because we, let me tell you about our Redeemer. Our Redeemer loved us so much that he took on flesh. And he carried the burdens of our sins onto a cross. And he died for us. But death could not hold him just there. Death didn't stop him there. It didn't stop right there. Our Redeemer showed how truly powerful he is and he conquered death. The very thing that keeps us down, he conquered it. Jesus is our redeemer. Jesus gives us that hope. 
our Redeemer lives. Jesus lives today. In our chaos, in our frustration, in our hurt, and in our pain, Jesus is with us now. We are guided by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in front of us, behind us, above us, and below us. Our Redeemer lives. And the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, the same power that conquered death, lives within us. So as we see Job here declaring that, declaring, hey, though I'm facing all this trial, I know my Redeemer lives. My hope and prayer is that you know that your Redeemer lives, that your Redeemer has equipped you, has given you the power, the same power that rose him from the dead, to walk through those, that time and season of brokenness. God has equipped you to walk through that trial, that frustration. And my hope and prayer is that at the end of it, even in the end of it, in the middle of it, that you can still proclaim that your Redeemer lives. That your Redeemer is with you and is your hope. And I hope and pray that as the words that come towards you, that attack you, that your response can be, my Redeemer lives. Because I'll tell you what, it's difficult at times to say that. And that's normal. But when we think of the goodness of Jesus, let us be reminded that our Redeemer lives, that he loves us so much, and that he is walking with us, not just when things are great, but in the brokenness of life. As we gather, Lord, we pray that you continue to move within us. Lord, we pray that as we face those trials in our life, Lord, that you continue to guide us, that you continue to direct us, that you continue to move before us and after us, above us and below us, Father God, that you, Lord, remind us that you are in control. Lord, may we speak truth, may we be honest, and may we proclaim that you live. Lord, may we live into your grace and into your mercy. Lord, every season that we are walking through right now, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you equip us with your peace, with your patience, with your grace, and with your mercy, and remind us of your love. Lord, thank you for seeing us in a way, Father God, that we cannot describe. God, you are good, and we love you, and we worship you, and may we live this life, Father God, that proclaims your grace and your mercy. We love you and we worship you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.